Welcome to Open Deeply Season 3, as we burn down shame and reclaim our power. The truths society pushes into the shadows are the very things that connect us. Truths around sexual authenticity, the wisdom of plant medicine, the pursuit of equity, and beyond. To open deeply, as Jack Cornfield says, takes tremendous courage, a warrior spirit. This unconventional path takes just that. So join us. Together, we have the courage to open deeply. Here are your hosts, Sunny Megatron and Kate Laurie. Welcome to Open Deeply. I'm Kate Laurie, and my co-host is sex educator, Sunny Megatron. To open deeply in your mind, body, and spirit, and connect to life and love fully takes wisdom. A part of that wisdom is the knowledge that vulnerability is courageous. It's safer to stay in a restricted emotional box. But the box that keeps you safe is so often the box that keeps you trapped. So the question is, how can you venture out while maintaining self-love and self-care boundaries? Today, we have a wonderful guest who has been braver in her vulnerability than most that I have known, Megan Batia. Maybe she can help us answer that question. Megan is the host of Amory Podcast, where she and her two partners, Marty and Kyle, share vulnerability about their experience navigating polyamory. Viewing life through the lens of relating, Megan believes that there are endless ways to deepen our awareness when we see and understand the patterns of relating. She now works with people one-on-one and in groups to develop healthy, loving relationships in every category of life. After traveling with her twins and two partners to over 14 countries in the last five years, she now happily calls Costa Rica her home. She hosts Amory retreats for non-monogamous relationships and offers courses on self-love. Before we get started, I need to remind you that Open Deeply Podcast is not therapy nor a replacement for therapy. If you catch yourself becoming emotionally overwhelmed by this episode's content, please get support. Call or text a friend, a therapist, or call the nationwide crisis line 988. Today, I'm so happy to have Megan Batia on. I've been on her podcast and I went to her first Amory retreat. And so, which was amazing. And I spoke there and all all of that. And so Megan and I, you know, you and I have gotten to be friends and I just think you're this wonderful human. And so I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. Just really not a bad bone in your body and you're bringing so much good stuff to the world. And I think you're probably helping a lot of folks who are, struggling with non-monogamy and trying to find their way. One thing that I really loved immediately about your podcast and everything that you bring is that your podcast in particular, of all the ones that I've listened to, has the strongest heartbeat. Other podcasts, you know, like Multiamory is amazing, but it's very heady. And so your podcast brings some balance to some of the best podcasts. You know, if you just chose two, and you listen to multi-amory more for the heady part, and then listen to yours for the heartbeat part, you'd have your bases covered. So I think even though you have other things going on, like your retreat and your classes and all that, I think a good place to start is just to talk about how Amory started as a podcast. Because, you know, what the way that you started out, Amory, with your two partners, Marty, your husband, and Kyle, your boyfriend, 
was so raw and vulnerable. And I, I just feel like that's a good place to start. So you can you give people listening kind of a framework for how that podcast started out? Sure. I just want to say first, thank you for everything you just said. That was super sweet. And I am really excited to be here with you, Kate, and to meet you, Sunny, because I've heard so much about you. So <laughs> I feel like now, now my life is complete. Oh. <laughs> So yeah, and Kate, to your point too, I definitely have a shadow side. We all got shadows. So, you know, don't want the listeners to think I'm all light, no shadow. So yeah, the Amory podcast started because I couldn't keep what was happening in my life inside of me anymore. I literally needed to share it. This is like a compulsion. This is now something I know about myself. Luckily, I have two partners, a beautiful husband of now, oh God, how many years? We've known each other 23 years. And I've known Kyle for five. When we started, I think I had been dating Kyle for maybe a year. And I just literally could not keep it inside of myself because I was, I felt like I was in two worlds. I was in the world that I knew before, that whole monogamous paradigm. And then the world that was like being created inside of me and in my intimate relationships was one that I didn't know. And it was so fabulous and busting open my heart, my mind, what I, who I thought I was, what I thought the world was about that we just had to record. So the initial, probably the first year is really heavy. It's really heavy. Actually, (laughs) if people want like raw and vulnerable stuff, like we literally recorded, we processed on those podcast recordings that first year, you know, some were really light and fun. Some was sharing some of our background and some was like massively vulnerable I think it was the seventh or eighth podcast I recorded with Marty, my husband, and we talked about how our marriage almost fell apart because of what we were going through. Luckily, it didn't. Luckily, we restored ourselves and kept going. But yeah, if people want to trip into that heart place that you're talking about, we literally put it all out there. I'm so glad we did. Things have shifted now that things feel more stable in my life. So we're not recording as much like of our dramatic vulnerable processing. And it's still, I think, really powerful. So that's kind of a little a little background. Happy to answer any other questions you might have there. I would love to know a little bit more about, you know, because you were so open on your podcast, walk me through some of the most rewarding parts, some of the hardest parts, and your most vulnerable moments on the podcast, you know, what were those and what were those like for you? Okay. I'm going to bring myself back to that, Megan, (laughs) because that has shifted a little bit. So I think to expand more, that part really that I recorded with Marty about almost losing our marriage was super vulnerable. I mean, I remember crying while recording it and I didn't listen back to it for about a year. I just, I couldn't, it was so, so raw what I put out there. And And what we received back was beautiful, really so beautiful. People were like, oh my God, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for what you said. Like, I feel seen. Oh my God, I've gone through something so similar. Thank you for making me feel not crazy. I mean, it was so rewarding to be that vulnerable and like (laughs) gut-wrenching. And then I've shared some really vulnerable times with Kyle because Kyle is now my partner of five years and We've gone back and forth between does he need another partner, trying to make space for that, you know, really sharing some vulnerable moments of like, oh my God, I can't be everything you need. I know I can't. Like, I've really come to find that my ability to love is also equal to my ability to feel and hold pain. (laughs) They are like, they are part of the same polarity, my friends. And so the more I hold, 
the more I hold both. And those moments with Kyle are gut-wrenching as well to be like, I know, like, you've got to do what you got to do. Full circle. I feel like I'm having a whole vulnerable moment with Kyle now, literally now, like yesterday, because he's in Oregon. I'm not quite ready to share what's like that because that's so fresh. But I'm happy to say it's like, it's, we're still digging into the learning together. We are still like, we've called each other learning partners and I'm really clear that that's what we do together because our hearts are open to each other and we go through the pain and we feel it and we try not to blame each other. Although sometimes blame creeps in there. We try to own that shit pretty quickly, but yeah, we like keep growing and learning together. And same thing with Marty, although Marty hasn't been on the podcast for the last year or so because he's really wanted to put his time and energy into other projects, which I wholeheartedly support. So we just like, I just feel like Emory is this record of my life over the last five years. <laughs> oh, that is amazing. Yeah, it really is an amazing journey just to, you know, because I've listened to most of the episodes and just to watch how it progressed is uh, very cool. And you recently had an episode about, you know, spirituality, about plant medicine, that sort of thing. And you and I have talked about that to a degree. And so I'm curious how your own spiritual experiences, whether it's pranayama or holotropic breathwork, or whether it's plant medicine or meditation, like how have those things shifted and interwoven into your non-monogamous practice and how you see non-monogamy? What a good question, Kate. Oh my gosh. Okay. I'm going to do my best to summarize this. I feel like it is this journey of ethical non-monogamy that actually has cracked me open in a spiritual way. I feel like maybe some people come from the other direction. You know, they like might meditate or do plant medicine or do breath work and then go, oh, I have a spiritual side. Like, oh, that's juicy. Let me dig into that. What is that? For me, it was like, whoa, relating. Oh my God, relating is a spiritual practice. Holy shit. Like I am experiencing pieces of me that I didn't know before oh, I need help. I need like, I need more tools. And that's where I pulled in breath work. That's where I pulled in more like psilocybin and plant medicine to really help me process some of the experiences that I was viscerally feeling and coming up and through my body because I needed it, honestly. So to me, they fit together. And that's why I feel like this is such an interesting conversation because I think we could all find our own path of spirituality. I think that spirituality is such, it's such a big word that we use, everybody uses it a little bit differently, right? So it's kind of like, how do you relate to the word spirituality? How do you relate to the concept of spirituality? Do you consider yourself a spiritual person? To me, it's basically spirituality is the meaning that I find in my life. The meaning that I feel in the way that I relate to myself, to others, to my environment, to the world, to everything around me. So I kind of feel like everything and anything could be a spiritual path, not to like downgrade that word. But I think as soon as we have that framework, everything literally does give you access to a spiritual part of yourself, which is this deepening awareness, knowing, questioning. I feel like it brings to life in multiple colors, like what it means to be alive. So this just happens to be my path. I mean, there are billions of ways to get there, I'm sure with as many people as there are on the planet, but yeah, that's kind of been my path. 
it's a good point to nuance it like that, because certainly there's people like in my life, some of the people that I've met that are atheists or agnostic are some of the most ethical, kind people I've ever met in my life. And so, you know, it's not like it's not saying one way is better, but it is part of the reason I ask you is I've just seen that with other people. I've seen it with myself, you know, like if you look at Dr. Christopher Ryan, he wrote Sex at Dawn. And then right after that, he started skewing towards psychedelics. Or if you look at Aubrey Marcus, had that huge podcast about non-monogamy, and then all of a sudden started skewing towards talking about, you know, spiritual journeys and completely shifted gears. And to a degree I have as well. And I started to think like, what is the through line? And I think for me, I think it has been a willingness to experiment with my body, frankly, at first, you know, through sexual experiences, and then it just progressed to being willing to even on the lighter scale, do something like a pranayama or holotropic breath work where you're breathing for 35 minutes. And like for me, it's seeing full on visions. Like some people that would be scary. But for me, it's that path that has led to all kinds of shifts in my thinking that have gone, you know, also interwoven back into non-monogamy. So yeah, can I talk on that point? Because that is access through our body. It is what I call sensorial data. It is information that's coming up and through our body. Our body is built to perceive information, right? On the outside and on the inside. And I think our culture focuses so much on the information outside of us. You know, that's really what we talk about. That's what we have language for. It's what we focus on. But the information on the inside is just as important. And I think that's what all of these skills and tools, plant medicine, breathing, it really actually helps us access what's happening inside and focusing on that. Again, it's just information. It's the way that we're relating to that information and how do we integrate that information into our understanding of the world at large. That is a spiritual process. And I think this is why the well is so deep in this area, because the more you dig into through your body, through your you know mind-body complex, if you want to call it that, uh, there's just so much information there. And that's why it's like exciting to have it come out. It's also can be super confusing and scary to be like, what the... What was that? Like, I don't get it. <laughs> right. And I, I'm wondering if, Sunny, you can comment on any thoughts that you're having right now, because I know, you, you know, you come at this completely different. And I'd like you to say your thoughts. Well, I love your definition of spirituality, because, you know, for the longest time when I would hear the word spirituality, and I know this is the case for a lot of other folks, we had that stereotype of it's, you know, connected to some sort of religious practice or higher power, very like ethereal or metaphysical. And I am one of those very pragmatic sort of scientists quantum physics kind of people. And that stereotype turned me off, you know, and I, I, for the longest time, I'm like, I'm not spiritual. I'm not spiritual. But hence, look at all the conversations and the thinking I have are pretty damn spiritual. They just have a different flavor. And I think that's what a lot of folks miss that that's, you know, one I don't know, archetype, flavor, whatever of spirituality, but spirituality is a lot larger than that stereotype that we put out there. And just knowing that and accepting that is like, well, that in itself is eye-opening. So I love that definition. Oh my God. I so relate to you, Sunny. I so do. I would have called myself an atheist up until at least like seven years ago. That's how I identified. It was like stoic atheist. And like all about the science and like, oh, that woo woo shit. Like, I want to leave that to the side. I feel like now I've learned how to integrate both. Like it's not, it's just like my world is poly. It's both and, 
you know, it's not either or. I've kind of dropped the binary thinking around that to be like, these are literally the same thing talked about and looked at with different lenses, different words, different. Yeah. So I can so relate. And I'm so glad you represent like so many of us out there that are in that that place. Yeah. I kind of consider myself, I'm like, the reluctant spiritual person. Like, I'm not really, blah, blah, blah. yes, I am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask you a question? Sure, Sorry. sure. How does your spirituality show up? It's still a journey for me. I'll put it that way. And Kate and I have had lots of conversations about this is, I don't know if it's my neurodivergence or just the way I am, who knows? I approach things head first, and then the body and the somatic follows. To me, I can't rationalize the somatic. I can't understand the somatic until I I understand kind of the pieces and I can label it all. Then I'm all with it. So I'm just coming to realize that over the last few years and putting together, you know, the woo and the pragmatic. So that's where I am. And I think for me, it shows up as an openness and an accepting to marry those two lines of thinking a lot more than I'm used to and to get rid of that resistance. I would have said before, my mind was my safe place. And I think I crave. So when for me to feel safe, I need certainty. And my mind likes to know. So for me, stepping into the spiritual realm, if we want to call that, was dropping that res- that fear of not knowing and going, well, what if I, can I be okay with uncertainty and with not knowing? And what happens when I sit in that place? And you're right. Like sometimes in the body that doesn't feel safe. So now I like to play back and forth and between like, okay, can I be in my body for this experience? And then can my mind catch up later and I, I will make a story about it and then I can be certain about what it was that I experienced or do I need a mental framework first for me to feel safe to actually be in my body <laughs> to experience what it is? And I don't think it's one or the other. I think when we view these two parts of ourselves as like both necessary in the human experience, we can go back and forth. You know, we can start with one, flip to the other, like, oh, yeah, spend a little time over here. Oh, flip back and and like merge them. Truly. Absolutely. I would love to talk a little bit more about open relating. And there's a definition of open relating. It states that open relating is about creating and maintaining conscious, connected and autonomous, expansive relationships, regardless of their dynamic and how many people are involved. Doing so requires an honest, unflinching look at our own vulnerabilities, fears, needs, wants, and desires. So I would love for you to tell us a bit more about what you've learned about open relating and what you think it takes in terms of personal growth for a person to be effective at open relating? That is a huge and beautiful question. (laughs) (laughs) I think I might spend the rest of my life on that question. So I think it takes a level of self-awareness that we don't generally have or bring to the table. And I think that that's the benefit of stepping into the world of open relating. I would love to say like, I was super self-aware and then I decided to open my relationship was not the case. Like I was aware of what I was aware of and then, and then stepped in. I think what it offers us is, I like to call it emotional exposure therapy is open relating because you're going to deal with some emotions that are super uncomfortable and the ability to sit with those and not project them onto others, not blame others for feeling what you're feeling, but truly being with that and processing it 
I think that is a main skill set of open relating. And I think it's something that takes, it's like a muscle that we're not used to flexing, which is like being uncomfortable. I think that's why I like ice baths so much right now, <laughs> because I'm like, oh, this is helping me. I can sit with the cold. And the more I build that muscle of sitting with discomfort, I can sit with a discomfort of, ooh, like that hit me in the gut. I feel rejected or, oh, my partner's spending time over here or, ah, uh, you know, like whatever it is that happens in open relationships, all the stories that we make, all the situations that we put ourselves into. I don't know if I answered your actual main question with this. What is the skill set that we need in order to effectively open, like relate in this open container? I guess that's why I built out the self-love course, because I realized that I was coaching people in open relationships, realizing that everything was coming back to these fundamental skill sets of how do we relate to ourselves? What's happening in our body? Can I identify my triggered state? What does that look and feel like to me? What do I do in a triggered state? How can I be accountable for this? <laughs> and so I created this framework. So I didn't, it's not my framework, but I used the framework of body, heart, mind, and spirit for people to reflect and learn about themselves so that they could be more aware of themselves, accept themselves more, take care of themselves more, and really be more present in relationship. I think that is the skill set. I think that's the skill set for human beings, regardless of being in an open relationship. I'm like, hey, people, this is like the curriculum of life. Can we start here? <laughs> yeah, these are all transferable skills. It's like you learn it in one area and it's like across, I can use it in the grocery store. I can use it in my marriage. I can everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. With my kids. Oh my God. I started teaching this stuff. I taught the self-love course for a couple of years. And then I taught it to a teacher, the owner of the school where my kids go here in Costa Rica. And she was like, Hey, can you adapt that and teach some of that to the kids? I'm like, I think I can like, yeah, sure. Let me try that. The more I do it, the more I'm like, Oh my God, this really is, this is the education of the future. Like we need to have some of this in all the schools. If I recall, cause I think I've watched some of your videos on Instagram where you're literally either talking about being in the school or in the school, I believe there is a co component to this whole process that uh, relates to grounding or meditation. Because one thing that I've seen, and you and I have talked about this, is that all these different techniques that are out there, they very rarely say, oh, by the way, now this will work if you're not grounded and calm in your body. Because then you get in the high zone, anxious or angry, or you get in the low zone, dissociated, numb, checked out. And so I'm, I'm wondering how you interweave that because I, I do believe you do, right? Well, yeah. And shout out to your book too, because in Open Deeply, you talk a lot about this. That's why I loved your book and loved having you down and talking to the attendees at the Emory retreat, because you really dug into, okay, like when you're relating with a partner, when you get into conflict, you got to understand your triggered state. And I loved your particular take on the double trigger. So I guess what I'm trying to do with the kids is to have them become more aware and normalize when they get triggered they they feel unsafe. That's not abnormal. That is a human response. I've taught the kids all about the vagus nerve. <laughs> I'm like, Hey kids, this is, this is what's happening. Like you're getting sensorial information that's coming up. So I'm trying to teach them a little bit of biology, a lot about how to cue into themselves, a lot of normalizing around this is okay. Like you feel unsafe. You're wired that way. That's how we evolved so that we could check ourselves and go, I feel unsafe. I feel unsafe. What are your patterns? What do you do when you're unsafe? Do you freeze? Do you fight? Like, how can you become more safe? So I have them working on, they don't really like it. I mean, let's be honest, they're kids in school. I teach ages five to 17, one and a half days a week. 
So it's like a challenge for me, but I teach, I'm trying to teach them some breath work, some meditation, a lot of experiential activities. Just last week, I had them put their hand and hold it in ice to have them sit with discomfort and taught them how to breathe through it. And one of the girls, I mean, this is the wisdom that comes up through teaching. A 12-year-old girl, after having her hand in ice for two minutes, which was one of the longest times, I asked her, I'm like, how did you do that? And she said, well, I stopped fighting against it. I just accepted the feeling. And, you know, you think about that. What wisdom? This is a 12-year-old. We do not have to teach these things, per se. We have to give experiences in which people can find their own wisdom. So after that, I'm just like, hey, like, you know this. What Can you apply that to other things? They ask the rest of the class. If it's really about releasing the resistance to the discomfort, are there other areas in your life where it feels uncomfortable? Are there other feelings that come up in your body that feel uncomfortable? What if you release the resistance there? What if you could just sit with what was? And again, these are patterns, you know, they're patterns of relating. That's it. Just patterns of relating. So amazing. I just think about what if we all learned all of this when we were, you know, in the first grade or what have you, like, what would this world be like? And you, I couldn't help but hear that super famous Buddhist formula, suffering equals pain plus resistance. Like that's one of the most famous Buddhist formulas. And this child is already figuring that out. I know. It's amazing. Kids are wise. We give them a chance to be. The hard part, I'll be honest, is the interplay between the child and the parents, because that's a double trigger. (laughs) That's your double trigger moment, Kate. And nobody's getting like input in there. So I realize our whole educational system is a bit backwards because if we're, I'm just trying to teach the students there, but I realize I need to work with the parents too, because it's both, it's both. And, you know, when they both get triggered, it's just causing a pattern that, I mean, we know where the pattern goes. It doesn't, it's not helpful. And before we move on to the next thing that I want to talk to you about, I'll just say briefly to define double trigger for someone who doesn't know, it's a big conversation. So I'm not going to go into a big long winded description of this relatively complex topic. But it's that moment between any two people in a difficult conversation, where they both get triggered. And a lot of times when you get triggered, you go back to a very young age of the original stuff that is lighting up somatically and emotionally in your body. And when both people are triggered simultaneously, thus the double trigger, it's really hard for those two people to work their way out of it because there's not really an adult in the room, so to speak. I have used your phrase so many times, Kate. (laughs) I I love that in your book. You're like, there's no adults present. When you're in a double trigger moment, there's no adult present. Yeah. So how do we get in front of that? So it doesn't even happen, right? Anyway, and if you're curious about more of that, it's in my book. So let's move on to a different topic. I wanted to ask you about the concept of loss within non-monogamy. These days, I'm way more gentle with my non-monogamous journey. But there was a time, especially in my marriage, where especially because a lot of times I would purposely take on lovers that I didn't really think I would get too emotionally attached to. I would like purposely choose people like that, that they might be amazing in bed, but maybe there were certain core things where I knew it was never going to threaten my marriage. It wasn't until later that I became full on polyamorous and had to balance all of that. Because of that, each relationship would have a a short shelf life. You know, maybe it was three months or something like that. And so I was incurring like several breakups 
in a short amount of time. And there was times where I just had, you know, loss fatigue, you know, and I think this is going to happen within non-monogamy way more than in monogamous relationships. And I know for you, you've been mostly with Marty and Kyle, but I'm just wondering what your thoughts are related to loss and non-monogamy or polyamory. I was about to say, I wish I had more experience in this, but I'm like, do I? Mm, No. (laughs) I don't know. I can speak to it, but not from a lot of firsthand experience because I have been with my husband for 23 years and I've been with Kyle for five years. I really haven't incurred a lot of loss. And that's maybe what, and I thought I was going to, for the last year, I've been processing losing Kyle, you know, thinking, okay, I can't, I'm not meeting his needs or there's something that has to shift in this relationship. And I thought it was going to be like, okay, I just have to let that relationship go. That's turning around to be the opposite. And so, I mean, I thankfully I'm like processing actually the other, the other way, like, oh, whoa, no, actually this is a really committed relationship. I wish I could speak to that more, but I think my philosophical and kind of heart response to loss is that there's always something to learn and gain through it. You know, if anything, an understanding of how, how strong we are or what it is that we want or don't want in our life. I mean, I think everything has a gift, even, and sometimes especially painful things have a gift. So I definitely have played with lack. That's actually an area that I feel more comfortable talking about. So if lack is like short-term loss, (laughs) I definitely have played with that arena, but I have actually got a really good relationship with lack because there were periods where I had to go three months or six months without seeing Kyle. And I feel like instead of relating to that, like that was a bad thing or it was arduous or a struggle, I actually started to play with it. Like, what if I could embrace it? What if I stopped resisting the lack of his physical presence in my life? What if it was actually something to play with? And I almost wonder if that's a little bit, actually, Kate, I think you pointed this out at the retreat. You're like, you know what that's starting to sound like? That's starting to sound like a kink. (laughs) 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 I see Sunny. Yes. (laughs) I do think it is kind of a kink. And actually now I'm playing with it. I like stretching it out a little bit to be like, what if I don't relate to this like bad? What if it's like, oh, we got six weeks to be like, oh, let's stretch this shit. And I actually think that having short-term lack or short-term loss and certain needs actually helps me expand the relationship more because you get to play with the frequency you see people or you interact. And so my husband has been out for about a week with his partner in Mexico. I love missing him. It's great. I like, I like deeply to my core miss him. He gets back tomorrow and I'm like, I'm so excited to see him. That lack is really important. So I think in a world where everybody's all about abundance, 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 that's great. Sometimes it's like, hey, play with a little lack there. And that's got some gifts too. Yeah. I wonder if, if Sunny, you could pipe in because I've heard you talk on that envy and how, you know, and maybe lack and envy are almost kissing cousins. Well, you know, it's interesting because the kink thing has actually been running through my mind for the last couple of questions. One is, I think, Megan, you had said something to the effect of like you're testing your emotions or something. I call the play and kink like an emotional test kitchen. And I really call kink play. So like when you're talking about the hand in the water or whatever, you know, whatever it is, all those different like practicing and flexing that muscle. To me, it's play. 
whether it's kink, whether it's Dungeons and Dragons, improv, you know, those, it's all play. And that's my emotional test kitchen. So I was going, yes, yes, yes. So yeah, I think it is kind of a kink. And with, with lack, you know, it's sort of the same thing. You know, when I think of play and that emotional test kitchen, whether it's in the context of kink or, or whatever kind of play you want to call it, we're playing with a safe threat. Like we're getting a taste of that threat. That's like teasing that trigger, but enough where we can play with it and experiment with it and test it out as opposed to like, I'm full on triggered. So I see the same with with lack, with whatever it is you're playing with, because it is something that's unknown that you fear that's going to be negative, you know, you feel is going to be a negative thing. And to really like take that apart and, you know, spread apart the goo and play with it and examine it. And, you know, what are all the feelings in here and all the ways I can perceive it? It's just amazing. My brain is like, yes, this whole conversation. <laughs> ditto, ditto, what you just said. I'm like, yes, Sunny, yes, I feel you. And I, so I, the words I used were emotional exposure therapy. So exposure therapy is like exposure to cold, exposure to, you know, you could do it with your breath. It's like all these different things, but that is that safe container. And I think that that's where it's play. It's like, okay, if this container can hold it, now I can feel unsafe while feeling safe. <laughs> yes, it's a safe threat. And we love safe threats. I mean, we even love safe threats and, you know, roller coasters and hot pepper challenges and all of those things that we do without thinking about it. Humans really like dig into that stuff. I think I'm kinkier than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all kind of are. <laughs> I love it. It's like making it a, a, a place where I can step in more. So thank you. <laughs> hey, thank you. <laughs> I would love to talk about self-love. So in episode 60 of Amory, you talk about why self-love as a practice is like so key and central to polyamory. So I'd love for you to expand a little bit more on that, but also what do you do when loving yourself well is in direct opposition or conflict with loving your partner well? Okay. I'm going to let that one sink in because that's a different frame that I've used. I don't know if I've ever seen them in direct opposition. So that's where I'm going to try to start. I feel like maybe that question is because when we do something that we feel like is taking care of ourselves, it causes an emotional impact on someone else. So that would feel like a direct opposition, right? Is that kind of like what's happening? Mm -hmm. Okay. So in my world, they're actually not directly opposites. And this is where I feel like I've done a lot of work to exist in a non-binary world <laughs> to be like, what if I viewed it like a continuum instead of binary? So if we stretch that out where we, uh, we think that what we might do is like opposite, I view it like a continuum to say, well, if I take this action, that is going to cause an extreme reaction in my partner. And although I'm not responsible for their reaction, their reaction has an impact on me. Like, let's be real. And while we're it relating and anything we do is going to impact someone else, anything someone else does is going to impact me. What I try to do is like on a continuum, if I could move the dial a little bit to be like, well, I know I want that. Okay, great. Like that feels like that would take really good care of me. Like I self-love would be like, I'm allowed that. Like this is, feels really good. I'm going to go for that. 
And if I take into consideration the partnerships that are really important to me, if I took that direct action, it's going to have like, you know, it's going to have a reaction. So then I try to dial this like, okay, Megan, I get this need. Like I'm currently, I can give a real example of this. I just met somebody that I'm highly attracted to. So I, that hasn't happened a lot. And I'm sitting here with like, woo, okay, I desire more time with that human. (laughs) And so if I just did it without really being present with my current partnerships, that would cause a reaction. So now I'm sitting with that, that desire and I'm like, okay, well, how can I do this in a way that's not going to create a huge ripple effect in my relationship? I could do it by first expressing that. And then I can see how that lands. And, oh, that makes my partner uncomfortable. Okay, I can be with that discomfort. Part of my self-love has been increasing my muscle of being with other people's discomfort. Like, I don't have to take that on. That is self-love. It's like, okay, I can be with that. I get that my desire might be causing you discomfort. Okay, can we sit with that? What is that? What does that mean to you? That's painful, but why? Like, what are you fearing? What feels unsafe? And so I just kind of move in this continuum a little bit where I hold myself and the other. And I treat the other like me (laughs) too. You know, it's like, if I was the other, how would I want to be treated? And so to me, self-love, it's not just from this perspective. It's from the other perspective too. And if there's anything that open relationships have taught me is that we will get a chance to be on all sides. You know, just when we think we won't, it's like, oh, the universe is like, here you go, Megan, you were playing this role. Now you get the opposite. So you get to feel how that role felt on the other side. (laughs) How does that feel? And I'm sure the universe brings us that on purpose. It's like, oh, she's missing a little bit of this over here. So what I feel like is happening is that the universe is trying to bring us all perspectives because when we have more perspectives, we then start treating the other like ourselves because then we know, we know how that feels. So to me, I guess to answer your question full circle is like, I don't view the other, like I view the other, like a other me. And then I try to work with the two me's, the me that I'm currently having the experience of, and the me that I will probably have the experience of at some point or have had the experience of. And I try to like move things over time so that I find a, yeah, like a more happy place. It's not like perfect. (laughs) I don't know what perfect is, but it's like, it's like a dance, like a beautiful dance of how do we experience love in all the ways? And sometimes experiencing love is also like holding pain or discomfort too. Certainly in my private practice, there's been times where one person is just like all up in their high horse and like really upset with their other partner about, you know, something that's going on with non-monogamy. And I mean, Sometimes I don't get in the way of that, but if I feel like they are kind of catastrophizing, if I feel like it's partially because they are new at non-monogamy and they they don't quite know the ride that they have signed on board for, I might say, just keep in mind that the script is going to be flipped. You are going to be in the position that your partner's in right now. And think about that, because when that day comes, that your partner's going to remember how you related in this moment. And that is, if you're able to have compassion in this moment, when the script is flipped, your partner is going to be way more willing to also have compassion for you. I just want to kind of further this conversation. So there's different thoughts that I have kind of bouncing in my head. You know, we've talked about leaning into pain. Sometimes we need to lean into acceptance. 
But that can get tricky, like within non-monogamy, and you and I have talked about this, like you have been lucky enough, it seems to have been loved well and to have these long relationships. And sometimes they've gotten dramatic and this, that and the other. But at the end of the day, you've been loved pretty well, it seems from what I can tell as a bystander. But therapists for non-monogamous people, I run into all kinds of partners that sometimes are behave, have very heavy narcissistic behaviors or very manipulative, low-key sociopathic that and non-monogamy is their fuel source, their narcissistic fuel source, you know, the potential beautiful lovers, all of this. And so they can be very aggressive with their primary partner in order to wear them down so that they can have access to their fuel source, which is other amazing lovers, right? And so to me, that's where we hit a wall when it comes to tolerating pain, right? Like, and I just want to say that to listeners, it's like, and I think you would agree, because I, I know you well enough, Megan, to, and I want to hear what you have to say on this. But I don't think anybody, I don't think any of us, Sunny, you, Megan, myself would ever be saying lean into pain, like it's an ice bath or something like that. If it's to the extent that you are getting worn down, gaslit, Nar- you know, you're experiencing narcissistic behaviors in your partner. So with that, all that being said, kind of long winded, like, what are your thoughts regarding where you hit a wall in terms of acceptance, where you hit a wall in terms of pain, and like, when acceptance and all that can be throwing your own self care under the bus, so to speak. Thank you for bringing that up, too. You're right. Because of my experiences, I tend not to think from that perspective. So I think that's invaluable bringing that up. Everything that we said is really, it's like consensual pain, like opted in and yeah, and done on purpose. So I think the more and more I go through these experiences, the more I realize how much pain I've actually endured, not just in my relationships, but in like life in general, by not having healthy boundaries and by not understanding what it was that I wanted or needed in that moment. And I'm still building that muscle. I really am. I think that there are probably so many blind spots that I have in that area still to be like, wait, why, why am I still putting up with this? It's really kind of funny because I think of my kids instead of my partnerships in this way. And I'm just thinking this is probably a good way to explain it is so kids are born helpless, right? They cry. They like, you're used to a cry being a call for help and like, okay, we'll meet that cry. Sure. And then it's like a two-year-old temper tantrum. Okay. I get that this two-year-old is yelling at me because they want something. And I put up with that pain, you know, but at the point where they're seven, it's like, well, should I be putting up with them yelling at me? Uh, no, no, that behavior's done. Thank you very much. That's mommy's not going to be yelled at anymore. You can ask me politely, <laughs> but the same thing goes with my partnerships to so be like, ah, oh, you're kind of throwing a, you're throwing a temper tantrum here. Like I'm all for hearing what you need and want, but not this way. Like this way doesn't work for me anymore. So I think that's what I'm still trying to build the muscle of. And it's kind of like the frog in in boiling water. Like it's just been boiling for so long. You don't realize like, oh, that's really not a great way to be related to, but it has to do with power dynamics. And the more I step into my own and I cue into what feels good in my body, as soon as it doesn't feel good in my body, (laughs) That's like a ding, 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 red flag, red flag. It could be my kid yelling at me for something. It could be my partner taking out their anger unintentionally on me, which happens, you know, we like anger is one of those things, or it could be somebody on the street talking to me rudely. It's just kind of like, that feels bad. No, thank you. And so I think my dial has become more sensitive now. 
I think when I was a kid, I just kind of put up with shit because I didn't know that there was any other way. I think that's kind of like how we're raised is you just, nobody's there to help us sort this out. So we all kind of like disassociate at a certain level to be like, well, whatever, that's just life. You know, men are going to do this and they're going to blah, blah, blah. And okay, that's just how things are. I think I've got a certain level of self-confidence now and self-love and self-awareness to be like, yeah, no, that's shit. Come on, people, raise the bar. You know, I'm not up for this anymore on like all levels. And I say that I have blind spots because I'm sure in five years from now, I'm going to be going like, whoa, I was putting up with a lot of shit. I thought, I mean, I have beautiful relationships. I really do. But I think we're putting up with a lot in society right now that we're going to, if five years, 50 years, if we make it 500 years from now, (laughs) we'll be like, what the fuck were we doing? We put up with a lot of shit. Why were we doing that? Oh, because we thought it was normal. No, like, let's stop normalizing. Like I could go on a rant of all the things I want to stop normalizing, but I can, I think my point has been taken. (laughs) (laughs) I wholeheartedly agree with you. And, and yeah, that is a muscle I'm constantly building. I don't know if it comes with age experience. My tolerance level has been worn down what it is, but yeah, I'm with you on, you know, getting there to the point of recognizing like, okay, you can be upset. You can vent, you can explode. But when it's directed at me, that's, you know, that's a no, I got a boundary there. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So let's talk about compersion for listeners who aren't familiar with the term. It's often described as the opposite of jealousy or enjoying and loving seeing your partner, loving something, someone, et cetera, else. So talk to me about compersion. When is it easy? When is it hard? And is it necessary to have compersion? Okay. Compersion in my world, I feel like has gotten easier. I think it's, it comes more naturally to me than I think a lot of people. And I saw that in the way that when my husband first connected to his partner, I was like, I'm so happy for you. I literally like felt it. It was present. It was like a joy of seeing someone that I had loved and been connected to for years, like seeing him third party get giddy and fall in love. And like, all of that was like, Oh, I get to see you in a whole new light. Like, that's awesome. Where I do not feel compersion is when I am not resourced. (laughs) If my needs are not met on a physical, mental, emotional, spiritual level, it is harder to feel compersion. It just is. I'm just not resourced. When I'm resourced, it's like my cup runneth over. I have love for everyone. (laughs) When I'm not, I'm like, precious. <laughs> I get all like grippy. <laughs> like, no, mine, mine. <laughs> I just did that the other day. I was like, I, this was maybe a month or two ago. And <laughs> so family days are on Sundays. And I got like really snippy with my husband who wanted to invite his partner on a Sunday. And I was like, family days, like Sunday's family day. You know, I was like super snippy, definitely not in compersion mode. That was because I was feeling a lack of like, I want to spend time with my husband and be with our kids and not have to like share that. I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. But I think had I managed that a little bit better, had I known like, I'm feeling like feeling low in this resource category and now I'm feeling more full. So I'm like, come on over partners. Like I got you. We're good. So I think to feel more compersion, managing our resources is like, that's the key. It's interesting with compersion. I see a lot of things in my practice, you know, where it, how should I put it? 
Like different things can cause people to hit a, a wall with compersion, you know, where they can't experience it. I think it's a lot of times it's easiest for most people if like say there's Mark and Tammy and they're swingers and they're really fit and they go to the gym all the time and they have hot really athletic sex and what did I name them Mark and Tammy and then Mark has another lover Lori and she's also you know she does CrossFit with him and they're you know swinger and the sex is very matchy matchy and so it's very easy for his nesting partner his his wife to have compersion because it is so similar versus a situation where say two people come together and they're really kinky and they have this hot sex and then let's just stick with the name like Lori has a horrible back injury and so she used to be his rope bunny but she can't do it anymore because of her injuries and then he gets another partner and he starts doing all of that with his other partner and Lori is just heartbroken because she can't do that. I see that, you know, like the more there's a difference and there's more, there's a feeling that I can't give that to you and you're outsourcing it, you know, where it feels like the person is outsourcing it. You know, people really struggle with compersion there. And the the other thing that I'd say is, well, two things. One, if somebody has a whole backstory before they ever met their partner, where there was lack, then they, that just kind of lives in their body. And so compersion is harder And then the last thing that I'd say is just um, a lot of times the nesting partner will be like, but I'm with you all the time, but they're there all the time, but there's not, or they'll say, but we even schedule quality time. But even in the quality time, they're just not as animated. They're not as lit up. But when they are texting and their partner sees that they're smiling really big, they're all lit up and they notice the difference. I totally see that. What you said too, reminds me of roles, the roles that we play, the different roles we play with different partners or people in our life. And we see when we feel like someone else is encroaching on our role (laughs) or, you know, there's roles being replaced here. I definitely feel like that's a sensitive point because it's like, again, I think it goes back to security. When we feel safe, we can feel a compersion. Like, it's just like, I feel safe. Great. Like this is a surplus. When we feel at threat, when we feel unsafe, when we feel like we're being replaced or, we're insecure about, oh, they have a better body than me, or they're younger, or uh, like all these different things. And it's like, unsafe, unsafe, (laughs) danger. And again, everything goes back to our body and our triggered system. And yeah, like we are, we are animals. Like we really are. We have, we have wiring that we cannot ignore. (laughs) We got to work with it. And I'm kind of wondering, I think we've kind of touched on this previously, but one of the biggest challenges in non-monogamy is that a lot of people operate from an unconscious reactive place. And I'm just wondering, you know, in your classes that you teach or, or just in your own experience, what has helped you pull out of being in an unconscious reactive place? How do you help other people? Like if you're working with a couple or a triad, what have you, and you can see them bouncing off of each other and you can tell that they're in an unconscious reactive place. Like what are your thoughts? What are your wisdom around how to pull people into a more conscious, compassionate place? Awesome. All of this is from firsthand experience. I know that I, it's usually, I have built the muscle to understand the awareness, to understand when I am reactive like it's going to happen. It's going to happen. I'm going to be reactive. I'm going to feel a visceral feeling in my body. And it's just really about knowing my states like, oh, I am in, I am avoidant right now. I am, this is what I do. I shut down when I don't feel safe, I'm reacting or, oh, I'm getting grippy, controlly. You know, it's that attachment theory 
and stuff. And then somatically being in touch with my body, knowing this is what it feels like. And I have my toolkit that I do to calm my body down. I'm sure everybody has their toolkit. It's just, do they put it into practice? Are they aware of when they're triggered? And do they put it into practice? Because as soon as we get triggered, we need like at least 20 minutes to de-escalate our bodies because our story follows state. If we are interacting from a state that is a triggered state, we are going to be creating a story of problem and, and then it ripples, right? And then we think that thought and then our body reacts again. And then we've just created this like doom cycle. It is about each person being accountable. <laughs> this is what I'd like to say. Like we have to be accountable for our own nervous systems. Can you imagine if we lived in a planet where we were all accountable for our own nervous system? Like really let that sink in. What if we taught that in school? What if we were like, you are this creature, you live in a, this 3D body, you have a nervous system, this is how it works. You are responsible for your triggered state. You are responsible for what you do in that triggered state. You are responsible for knowing your techniques to calm yourself down. So I like to make sure people take a step away to say, okay, first, you know your, your points. What are your go-tos? You know, I could ask you guys, I'm sure you know, from me, when I put on music and can dance, that is hugely helpful. When I can get out, I live right on the beach in Costa Rica. There's a reason I live here. My body feels grounded. I did that on purpose. Like me in a city, I don't feel grounded. That's just me. Now I feel grounded. I can go dunk in the ocean if I want to. I do an ice plunge. I do breath work. You know, I journal. I have a million and one different ways that, and they don't all work at this, you know, Sometimes I have to be like, well, that one didn't work. Okay, that one didn't work. Okay, okay. It's been a day if <laughs> I calmed myself down. But the way I work with people and my clients, and especially in the self-love course, we spend a month going through being accountable for their own nervous system, identifying when they are triggered in their own toolkit. And then we talk about every time they get reactive, did you do your practices? Did you take responsibility for your own emotional state? Not to blame your partner for what they did that caused that emotional reaction, that's yours, my friend. That's yours. This is the hard part, the hard work that people don't want to do, really. It's just like, you know, we like to point the finger, fingers. You did this. That made me feel this way. No, like, it, yes, they did that. And, and you felt like that. You know, the and is your responsibility. Now, if they do that again and again, and you keep getting triggered, do you want to be in relationship with them? <laughs> do you, you can A, use that as like, a catalyst for growth and that insecurity, that wound, that trauma that is still there living in your body. Or you can say, dude, I do not have the bandwidth for this. I cannot be in this relationship because I keep getting triggered. I am not up for that. This does not work for me. And those are really like, these are tough pills to swallow. You know, it takes a lot of personal accountability. And that's why I changed my handle recently to the loving challenger, because I hold people in love got lots of love. That is the safe container. This is the kink, Sunny. Love is holding them. And then I challenge the fuck out of them. You know, I'm like, I got you, boo. And you got to sit with that. Like you got to sit with that feeling and you got to do the work. This is literally the work of humanity right now. I truly believe in all of my heart. And this is back to the question of spirituality. This is our curriculum of our humanity in the way that we are evolving right now. This is the curriculum and we have to say yes. <laughs> we have to opt in. We have to, we will not survive. Like, you know, this planet will go on however it does, but like we have to start viewing everything that's happening inside and outside of us as microcosm and macrocosm. It is one and the same. I just saw something that was like, 
something's happened and Putin did something, something. And like, there's, I don't know, there's something happening right now, like war wise on the like big scale. It's like, well, this is happening because we, A, don't feel safe. Are we resourced as humanity? Are we valuing the right things? Are we prioritizing people understanding the nervous system and knowing the techniques to calm themselves down? If we give people power who do not have these skills, we will keep replicating the same conflict, the same fighting, the same, we will be, get more and more trauma. You know, people in our legislative systems should know, this should be like, I'm on my soapbox right now, but I don't want to stop for a second. Anyone that is making decisions for the public should be trained in this area, you know, because we're, imagine people are triggered and making decisions and laws and rules from like a fearful place. You know, people have their hand on a button that could destroy millions of lives, you know, if we're not centered, like that's a lot of power with a person, a human being that has a dysregulated nervous system. This is it. So from what I know of you, Megan, you and I, I would say we agree on things like, you know, like probably 90%, but there's like little places where, and with a lot of that, I agree with a lot of that. But I will have to say that the more privileged a person is, the easier that is. So let's like think of an example. Let's imagine a woman who has five children. She's working three jobs. She um, doesn't have the time to meditate. She doesn't have the time to do anything like that. She has a profound sexual abuse history that goes way back. She's in an abusive relationship with someone and they're doing some form of non-monogamy, but it's very toxic. She may not be able, you know, she may really struggle to get grounded. She may be isolated and be cut off from friends. You know, it's like for somebody and, you know, and then as we talked about, there's continuums, right? There's someone who has a lot of privilege, a lot of friends, they're super resourced, that's non-monogamous. And then there's like this really dire example that I gave, and it's all on a continuum. And so the more we're resourced within and without, the more we'll be able to do a lot of things you're talking about. But when someone isn't, when they are not only underprivileged, but they're dysregulated in their body where their partner just barely has to do anything. And oh, by the way, this is an abusive partner. And they are dissociated and, and they're on the ceiling. And, you know, the person that with the, and so for them to be able to regulate themselves and be responsible of their nervous system at that point is like little to none. And, you know, I so, so, so agree. And this is why I think it takes, it takes a village. You know, we are living in this world where we think everybody should be so independent. We are interdependent. <laughs> Everything everyone else does, it affects everyone else directly or indirectly. And I got firsthand experience of that. So yes, I know that I've, I have been very resourced in my life and I've been privileged enough to actually have certain experiences where I've been exposed to people where, I mean, I know I see it. I lived in six months in Auckland on a urban Maori farm. So I lived like literally, you know, on the farm there with people of Maori descent. So Maori are the indigenous in New Zealand. And there's a lot of trauma, like a lot, a lot of trauma. And it was a halfway house for people to come and like be held by the community. And I will tell you, it's amazing that they had that space to be held by the community. You know, women that were in abusive relationships, it just seems so much with it. When a person is that under-resourced and dysregulated, and we have many, like you look around the world, that is probably more common than not. And that's why I think we have a resource distribution problem on a whole. <laughs> like this is why we need to look at resources and where we're going because we think that it's not a problem, but it's a problem for everybody everywhere. But yeah, like 
when a person's in that state, just offering relief is the key. It's like, can we see someone is dysregulated and come in as a community? And that's where the work that I've done at the school is like, I can see where the kids get dysregulated because they're in a family that's going through separation. And it's like, can the, you know, the parents are going through their divorce. Can we come in as a community and help regulate the child in that moment? Can we help regulate the parents for that matter? You know, and that takes bringing down walls. That's like, it takes people being really, really vulnerable you know, it really does. Like even to allow yourself to be resourced is super vulnerable because you are allowing yourself to take in resource from someone. And if your experience has been, that is unsafe. That's like asking somebody to do something that's like ultimately like the ultimate unsafe experience. And you're like, no, like, trust me, I got you. And like, ah, so this is Yes, Kate. Yes, yes, yes. Like, I so agree. And that's why the more resources we have, the more we need to look at how do we be a part of this village? You know, how do we be a community? And that's why I think the poly community is actually going to take the lead. I really do. I think the poly community is learning on a very fundamental, personal level, what it means to be resourced by the community. And it's scary, like scary as fuck, really, to be like, okay, in my life now, I mean, the conversation I had with Kyle as he's realizing like, oh my God, I want to be back here. And I accept your partnership with Marty. Like there's been a level of acceptance there, but then also a level of rejection. And for him to realize like, oh, the stability of our relationship also is the stability of their relationship and that he wants to invest more time in that relationship. And for us to come together on a whole, it is scary and exciting at the same time because of the it really makes us be accountable for us like a village like this is our polycule this is our tribe okay when someone else who is connected to my partner is under-resourced or dysregulated they affect my partner which affects me so therefore I am a resource I am a resource and I, I really think the poly community is going to lead the charge in shaping a whole new paradigm of resourcing on a very human level. And then melting it from the community all the way down between two individuals. Yeah, sometimes we can resource ourselves, but sometimes we can, you know, especially if it's before we're getting too dissociated or too angry, we can literally say to our partner, you know, I'm starting to get upset. Can you pet my head? Can you hold me? Can you put your hand on my knee? And so sometimes it isn't just us regulating ourselves. Sometimes our partner can learn the things that help ground us and can help ground us as well. And, you know, so that can happen on, on the individual level all the way up to the community level. Since we're on a roll, can I pipe in with a thought? Along the lines of what we're talking about, I think that the poly community is leading the charge when it comes to resources having to do with power. You know, you were talking about Putin and, you know, from down to Putin to down to, you know, the person you're in a relationship with, the acquisition of the type of power that's like authoritative or believes that power is a finite resource in order for me to have it, I have to take it from you. That's something that I see as a huge piece of this puzzle. And just like in the, the polyamorous community, love is seen as an infinite resource. The more we have, the more it exponentially grows for everyone. So is power. And I think until we see that on a big picture, we're going to have the Putins hoarding all the power and emotionally reacting from their nervous system and going, I'm going to press the button. You know? <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, yes. Sunny, I've never heard that connection made just in the way you just did it. That's awesome. I'm going to totally quote that. I mean, you hear that in, in polyamory all the time that love is infinite, but I've never seen that juxtaposition to power. And, 
you know, I've, I've heard it in the, the power discussed in the social justice context and then love talked about in the poly context, but I've never seen that bridge made between that connection made just like you did. And that yeah, was really I actually cool. approach this through kink, like analysis of types of power through kink and then relating that back. It's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. But I get off on like learning about power and how it works and how we use it and misunderstand it and all the things. Oh my God. I love that, Sunny. And I feel like I could learn so much. I feel like I'm just learning how to become power literate. I put this in part of my self-love course under the spirituality, under the spirit part, because I realized like what is actually in spirit? It's energy. Energy and power are connected. Am I power literate? And do I know where my power is at any given point? Have I given my power away to someone consciously or unconsciously? How do I call my power back? What agreements do I have to make in order to feel like I am empowered in this or that the power is split in a way that feels safe for me? And have you heard of um, a woman named Rian Eisler? Does that ring a bell? Maybe, but refresh me. She's older. She wrote the book, The Chalice and the Blade. She wrote a book also called The Power of Partnership. She's written a handful of books. I think she's in her 80s now, and she is one of my heroes. I got a chance to interview her on Amory, not because she's polyamorous, not at all, but because she has a whole framework around the spectrum of society from domination to partnership. That's actually her lens. She really has a beautiful framework. And so I got to interview her. I was like one of the most nervous. I've, I've like I've never been that nervous interviewing someone because I'm like, I'm interviewing Rian Eisler. <laughs> so she's just like a hero in my book, in kind of in my world, because she has language to explain this power dynamic. She has studied for decades. She actually started as, I think, a, uh, an economist. That's kind of like her trade. And she talks about the caring economy, how we don't actually have a caring economy. We valued all these other activities and we haven't valued caring, which is why the power imbalance between the traditional masculine feminine roles is so evident <laughs> because we literally have built no economic structure to value care. And so some of her books are around, she has an economic book that shows how we can value care more. The power of partnership is about how to see domination to partnership on all levels, starting with the self, going to the family unit, to the to the community unit, to the society unit. It's a really great read. I highly recommend for anybody that's interested in this conversation and seeing how we can move more from domination to partnership, like that her work is great. But for me, where that clicked in is people dominate when they are afraid because that is an attachment, right? So you go to control someone else, you go to dominate when you don't feel safe. And that's why I feel like the most unsafe person in the room is going to be the like the uh, the one that feels, we'll put it that way. The one that doesn't have safety in their body is actually maybe more of the dangerous person because that person will then consciously or unconsciously try to control the world around them in that seeking of safety, which is human. Like if we stop pathologizing all of this and just be like, hey, we are humans. This is how we human. This is like a reaction that happens when we don't feel safe. This is the pattern that it looks like. If we look at, okay, we've created this pattern. What does that mean? We need to create more safety. How do we create more safety? That should be the conversation. <laughs> yes. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. This conversation has been absolutely amazing. I'm going to be chewing on it for a very, very, very long time. As we wrap up, I know you have a second Amory retreat coming up. So tell us about that or any of your other courses, et cetera, that you'd like the listeners to know about. Awesome. Thank you, Sunny. I've loved this conversation too. I'm like, can it just keep going? 
So yes, thank you. We've got a second retreat coming up in November and I'm so excited. We're going to have double the spaces available. So that is going to be massive for 40 people that are willing to come to Costa Rica, twist your arm and dig into the nature of relating, really dig into what does it mean to relate to myself? What does it mean to relate to others? How can we keep building these skills? We've got really fun stuff planned. I mean, Kate was there, so she knows catamaran trip, uh, breathwork exercise, and tons of conversations around this, these topics and more. A lot of body work, somatic work, dancing on the beach in the morning. Yeah, there's just a ton. So I'm so excited for that. If people are interested, I'll give you a link you can share. And also, I'm honestly really excited about a six-month program that I'm putting together that doesn't even have a name. (laughs) I'm going to talk about this nameless program because it is like being birthed out of me right now as we speak. So I've had the self-love program that's eight weeks. That is that container I feel really solid in. That is probably the foundation work. So what I'm looking for is a small group of people that feels like, okay, I got self-love. It's like, I feel good in myself. I'm really looking to expand and shift my the 3D world outside of me and to understand how to relate at the most fundamental levels. So what I'm digging into is what I believe is that we relate to everything and everyone around us with the same set of patterns. And if when you change one pattern, you change the way you relate to everything. So a small example is when I realized the uh, with attachment theory, avoidant versus like controlling kind of reactions, I then saw that with everything. Oh, look at me. Look at when I do that with my kids. Look at me when I do that with money, with food, with everything around me. So this is like a deep dive into, can we see the patterns of the way that we relate? And so it's a six month program for people that are ready to really, really up level the way that they relate from like the core systemic place and not just these little like branches, you know, like relationship, food, money, business, work. Where do I live in the world? It's like, no, it's all the same. So that was really long-winded, but thanks for letting me get that out. I'm really excited about it. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. This has been great. This has been wonderful. I'm going to chew on it. Listeners are going to be chewing on it. And listeners, I want to tell you, we've got more. So make sure you subscribe and tune in with us for next episode, where we once again, dare to open deeply. Thank you for listening. Find us online at opendeeplypodcast.com and on social media at Kate Marie or at Sunny Megatron. Check back bi-weekly for new episodes. And until next time, remember, your authentic truth is only found when you dare to open deeply. Intro and outro voice by the queen goddess, Frenchie Davis. Intro and outro music by the Baltimore Bull, Rob Burrell.